Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you're good. I'm still Jack Chu, returning um, yesterday's hiatus. If you haven't got used to it yet, we have guest hosts on Tuesdays now. Many people enjoying heckling me on social media saying it's the best show of the week is a Tuesday because you're not there. Obviously, I've got thick skin, but you just don't know how hurtful you're being. Of course, I jest. I don't give a monkeys. And you're right. They're brilliant. Our guest hosts have been smashing it out of the park. And Jack March, my partner in crime in many projects, bringing you some rheumatology spice uh, every third Tuesday, I think, of the month. Um, and Leanne and the First Steps crew, and everyone's just doing a great job on Tuesdays, so I can be a dad for a bit, which is another role I wear. Um, wear, wear, what is it? Hat I wear, role I do. Sorry. I'm really looking forward to this show today. Um, and I say that all the time, but it's kind of, that's the nature of curating your own show. You see, you're building episodes of which you like and you're interested in. And I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into this topic with these two lovely ladies who I've just met briefly in the in the lobby ahead of the show. And, and I was saying to them how interesting this topic is in part because it's, it's sort of seldom discussed and it's downstream consequences. And, and, the, and the, the, it should be something that we hold in our minds as a variable more than we do when we're thinking about hip pathology and by not doing i think it, it, there's so much injustice that gets served and so therefore i'm really pleased to have mj sharp and holly doyle with us today to talk about hip dysplasia now i'm gonna say no more and hopefully in a few clicks i can bring them in and we can discuss it all together but uh, mj holly can you hear me hello hi jack yes i can hear you Fantastic. Great stuff. Oh, Jack, good. Yeah. Good. I'm glad that glad the technology's working. So we'll get stuck straight in then and we'll start with you, MJ, if that's okay, because there's two big parts to this really. Is I'd love to love to talk about the topic, but then also talk about the, the consequence of you two both having a shared interest in this that has resulted in you creating some resources for your patients, um, of which you know we always want to try and then translate and, and, and get them out as far and wide as we can to, to raise standards in MSKK. You know, that's our core project. But to start with, MJ, I, I'm, you're, you have both a professional and personal interest in this topic. So if you could just tell your, your tale and introduce yourself to the listeners in that direction, if you would. Yeah, well, hi, Jack. Thanks for having me on here. Um, so my initially, my interest came about from this, really from having the condition hip dysplasia and through my experiences as a patient going through all the kind of the sort of long circuitous route to diagnosis and the surgeries that you have to undergo um and now obviously part of that journey became me actually becoming a physio so becoming actually a health professional um and so that's led to kind of a professional interest as well really and things i've been involved in um yeah so it really for me it all really began when i was well i mean initially it all really began when i was a newborn i was diagnosed with as having a clicky hip as a newborn which was treated with a pavlic harness as it quite often is and was believed to have resolved after about a few months about seven months um and it, they we believed it had resolved and i had no issues then growing up um but then began to have symptoms again at about the age of 22 23 um and that's where my story starts from there. I went through many years of kind of going through that process. Um, so that's where it starts for me. Um, it kind of um, doesn't always get picked up though, does it? That's the thing that I've come no. to realize. And also um, many of my listeners will know we've got, I've got twin boys and, and the nature of being, being twins, especially they are identical twins. They're in the same 
uh, I mean, I think SAC and therefore they get scanned as standard, um, so, you know, sometimes policy in every hospital, but particularly with twins, that is the gold standard, particularly this type of twin. It's super common because it's bunched up in there, basically. And so um, it's then that it reminds me of conversations I've had with patients about either them or their children and various different things have occurred whereby it's been it's been missed. Um, and, and in this instance, though, it wasn't that it was missed, but it was that then the, the, there's quite a significant asymptomatic gap then, and that then some of that history may, may well have not been either picked up, or, picked up on or respected, perhaps, in the early stages of you seeking help for this. Now, I'm, hmm. I'm deducing what I feel like I've maybe read from some of your social commentary before on, on Twitter and the like. So am I right in thinking that it was therefore an undervalued variable when you presented with hip pain? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, when I initially went to my GP, um, I mean, I, I mean, it was definitely in my medical notes that I had had this hip condition as a newborn, um, but was I don't believe really picked up as something that needed to be investigated further. So really, it was about four years into my symptoms when I actually was finally sent for an x-ray. Um, and even then, it was an x-ray of my knees, because by that point, I was having trouble with my knees as well. Um, so I had a knee x-ray, but not a hip x-ray. <laughs> and I had to go back and then ask for a hip x-ray. Um, so, and that's, for me, something that I thought, should I have pushed harder and said, well, I had this thing as a newborn. And I even remember my mum saying to me, oh, I'm a bit worried about this, because you had that that thing as a newborn. And I, But even at that point, I, I didn't even know what hip just, I didn't even even though oh, it was yeah. called hip dysplasia i just thought i had this clicky hip thing i didn't even know it was a thing so yeah well, so yeah you? that was well, quite you? It, shouldn't be on, it shouldn't be on you really i think mean, i think i'm going to bring you in on this holly and, and obviously give you a chance to introduce yourself as well before i get too too lost in, in obviously mj's story there but it's it's something that really especially now we, we would hope part of a good thorough subjective assessment that we're going to get opportunity to to ask some of those questions that, that may well you know, uh, have come up if given the chance to, you know, it, it's almost one of them things that could have just teed up MJ then sharing that, which she wouldn't have thought to do without us. So um, firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, and then secondly, what do you think about this in terms of a condition as an MSK? Hi, so I'm Holly Doyle. Thank you for having me on. Um, so I'm a clinical specialist in young adult hip at Stanmore. Um, so I also, like MJ, have a history with dysplasia myself right. too, um, so that probably piqued my interest in it. Yeah. But I think one of the main things that MJ and I have been discussing is that it's not really taught at uni. You get one slide on hip courses again, even you know at master's level, one slide on dysplasia. Um, and I think you know the the prevalence and the kind of research focus over the past years has been FAI, 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 or the RCTs. And hip dysplasia is about probably 10 years behind on the research. Right. So it's then promoting um, and improving the awareness around dysplasia for clinicians, but from that baseline level, so from university all the way through um, various courses. So I'm writing a chapter at the moment on a book in dysplasia um, and just trying to help with improving the awareness around it. Um, and subjectively screening your patients really, really clearly about what their family history is, if there's any family history of hip problems, um, anyone else had early replacements, 
in the, in the family, even if they haven't, you know, they think up to about 60% of arthritis is, is due to dysplasia. Um, so it may be that, you know, incidentally, their mum had early replacements, for example. Is there then a family history? Up to 50% have hypermobility. So have they got hypermobility? Have they got EDS? Um, screening if they had any problems from birth. You know, often what you find is kids born 70s, 80s, 90s, they kind of were checked multiple times for the clicky hips, but never then had the ultrasounds done. Right. And obviously, unfortunately, what we don't know, and the research isn't there yet, is exactly why we get it. So is it that it's inherited? There is genetic predisposition, but is it also developmental? And, and why does that happen? At what stage does that happen? And we're not quite sure yet. The research isn't there. Um, so then, you know, it's trying to work through that screening process and try and think of it as a possible hypothesis when you're you're doing your subjective. So if they're young and they're female um, and they're very sporty, um, then you want to kind of think of dysplasia as a hypothesis. They often present, um, you know, aged around 21 if they're very sporty or later 20s if, if they're not as sporty. Um, but often, unfortunately, the problem is, is that a lot of their symptoms are, or our symptoms are, you know, gluteal tendinopathy, psoas issues. Most are treated for many, many years as psoas tendinopathies or gluteal tendinopathies, which truly it is, but for an underlying issue. So I try and then encourage clinicians to get that in. They think that's the hypothesis to what's wrong, but if it's not improving and you haven't got scans within those 12 weeks, then push them forward and look for if there's a potential for them to require so a scan. What's the underlying theory with regards to that then, with regard the the, the dispositional, um, not this, what's the word I'm looking for, like that, the likelihood of them developing tendinopathies as a secondary, is that because of there's an inherent instability, say, or subtle instability that then is overcompensated for? Is that the rationale, the logic? Yeah, so a lot, so psoas, so for example, is one of the biggest stabilizers. Um, if you then are deficient, through the passive stability system, so through your bone anatomy. And then if you, as I said, that 50% have that hypermobility as well. So that ligament laxity on top with the capsular laxity, oh, yeah, you're yeah. very deficient then anteriorly. Mm. And obviously, psoas is your main stabilizer. And then certain postures really um, exaggerate the amount of stability psoas has to do, so that it can become that issue. And also because of the little micro shearing that you get on the actual joint as it's moving, what we tend to find, and again, it's not been done in dysplasia, but if you look at Alison Grimaldi's work um, on arthritis and on gluteal tendinopathy, it's the deep stabilizers that waste away and the more superficial ones stay the same in pathology. And then if you link that into uh, the Berlin bed rest study, where they put astronauts in bed for eight weeks, MRI them pre and post, again, they found those deep stabilizers were most affected by unloading and therefore they were the ones that wasted away and the superficial ones remained the same. And then if you think about that pathology, that pain, then we're seeing those patterns. So what I see often, the Nunley study in 2011, you know, said unfortunately it takes five years on average for a patient to be diagnosed with dysplasia. And often they're told, oh, it's growing pains or it's psoas tendinopathy or it's something else. And then they've seen about four clinicians before they actually get that final diagnosis. And there's a lot of effect on psychology, on, um, you know, just being told, oh, it's in your head or it's growing pains. And 
you then get hold of them and trying to undo all the superficial sort of tonic muscle patterning and getting that deep stability system working. Mm. So we often see that that gluteal tendinopathy creeps in because they're overloading through psoas and TFL and glute meads really, really weak. And then they've unloaded because they've been in pain. They felt they can't do anything. So it's really well, important. And there's all these other things going on as well. And it's that if they are inferred to be primary when they're secondary, then we are becoming what we're often critical of and saying, well, you're treating symptoms, not causes. It's like, oh, you're not even close to the cause there if, you, if you're treating so superficially. Now, yeah. I don't, one of the things I'm really keen for us to not do, because I will not be able to manage it, is to name the origins and insertions of said small and deep musculature. So the Gamelli twins and the obdurators, right? Still gives me nightmares and flashbacks from my university days. So let's not go there because I'd be only embarrassed. I want to ask the live audience if I can, I know what you lot are like, especially with new guests on and stuff, especially as interesting as these are and the topic is that you end up being quiet until the end and then we don't have any bloody time for your questions. So please let us know what you thought so far. What do you know of it? So I want to ask you some direct questions, really. What do you know of hip dysplasia? How well do you think it is understood and respected within, you know, hip pathology as well, when they present, especially in primary care and things like that? Like how much is it, is it it's thought of and, and are we right as the three of us clearly saying that we think it's undervalued, underappreciated and therefore missed? Um, but also what you've touched on there, Holly, is that this, because of that coexistence of, of other pathology as well as then these other adaptation strategies and also the irritating way in which the human body is classically trained to adapt means that you've then got that's a good thing because it can sometimes then adapt positive strategy but then also it means that it can then hide this stuff for a while and therefore it's become on vogue and I'm bringing you in on this MJ because it's something that you, you've, you've, you've taught me a lot over the years we've never met but I've followed you on Twitter for some time and you've banged this drum really well, and it's definitely landed with me, and I know many others, where there is a, it is on vogue for us to have been overgeneralizing in a way, right? It's been this, it's been structural non-specificity, even treatment non-specificity, for the rationale being that bigger, you know, more broad interventions of, of, of just loading something or getting your load tolerance right, or to just encourage a, a, a more reassuring and then just encouraging more relaxed movement to decrease all, all reasonable things, by the way, certainly the mainstay of my practice, but it's that then by, by doing that to the detriment of some of the detail that we've talked about there, both subjectively and objectively means that these things get missed. And that is really poor practice based on um, just a, a new age version of neglect, in my opinion. So you've, as I said, been someone that's spoken to that for a while I've just given a, a brief sort of my take on that. How, how does that map on to your experiences and, and, and how much is it relevant to, to the story so far with hip dysplasia in physio? Yeah, I mean, certainly in my experience, definitely because, I mean, after my first surgery, I was in recovery and then, and then decided to go into physio as a career um, through that rehab and recovery process. Um, and I remember my first kind of, while going into this as a profession and starting to hear that message of like structure doesn't always matter structure doesn't always matter and in that point i was still going through part of the diagnosis journey because my my opposite hip my right hip still hadn't been completely definitively diagnosed and there was a bit of un uncertainty about that um and so i was hearing this but at the same time still wasn't completely clear on the actual long-term prognosis of my hips and what's going to happen right. um, and kind of starting to think, oh, 
what I have read about hip dysplasia, which is sometimes, you know, on Facebook groups or I don't know, Google, because there wasn't really any clear information about it, is that it can lead to hip or hip osteoarthritis and therefore I will eventually need a hip replacement. And at which point we don't know, we, we have no way of determining when exactly am I going to start developing OA in my hip and when exactly is it going to start deteriorating so that's what that was my kind of knowledge basic knowledge of hip dysplasia and then I was sort of starting to hear this message of well the structure doesn't matter matter message and uh, I'm starting to get quite confused um so definitely that that does speak to me um Mm. It is interesting with hip dysplasia because it is it's one of the it's on a spectrum isn't it so we can have some kind of very mild abnormality uh which may or may not cause symptoms or may or may not need surgery or may or may not even present itself in a clinic room right the way through to severe hip dysplasia or even something that dislocates so because it's on that spectrum it's very difficult to define is it a one one kind of thing um, and you know we all have mild abnormalities don't we everyone does that's that's the, one of the first things you learn in physio school is everyone's weird <laughs> um so yeah that that is definitely something that speaks to me um mm. and what did you did you ever feel i suppose dismissed when 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 thinking about this stuff because you always from what i could tell like you were always going on a, as we were all were doing learning about some of this stuff it was like clearly that you weren't pushing back against that whole thing as if the, as if you weren't suddenly a structuralist and you were trying to hark us back to the the, the days of, of just orthopedic structural logic but it, i just sort of sense perhaps and in a totally appropriate way by the way it was that you were you were sort of feeling like there was there was a really some really important specific variables that for some individuals were key were being overlooked. Did you ever feel personally slighted by that? Was it still something that was objective and professional? Um, by health by health professionals. Well, I mean, for me, not specifically dismissed. I maybe mean, maybe once or twice by the, the GP that I initially went to see. I saw another one after that. It was fine. <laughs> But it was more that th- it, things were getting explained to me um, right. or it, in certain ways or kind of I'd come out of appointments and think, right, I've asked these questions. I don't quite know what the answer was. They, they did give me an answer. I'm not quite sure what it was they were saying. Um, and I know we're great. At, uh, I'm still learning as a physio. Sometimes can we just waffle a bit to try and answer a patient's question when we don't we don't really know when actually what we should be saying and what I'd found with other health professionals, which was really, really beneficial, was saying that I'm going to ask a colleague who knows more about this than me and I'm going to get back to you on it. And it's the kind of if you don't know, then being honest with your patient and wording it in a certain way, because it's not always easy for us to say and we don't know. But I did sometimes find that that kind of ha- having to kind of read between the lines a bit and thinking, I don't think they know. <laughs> and it sounds it sounds quite a crude way of saying it, but um, I do remember having a conversation with a friend who's another health professional at one point saying, I've had this appointment. I asked her question and he actually did to say to me, I don't know anything about that. And she said to me, that's not acceptable. <laughs> but I said, well, I don't think anyone knows because I did actually get to a point where I thought, I don't think any health professional knows about this. <laughs> Maybe no one knows. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I, 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 um, I was just thinking that it's such a fine line, not just on this, but in other things, whereby we do want to be 
you don't want to just say I don't know completely so that you can't even offer baseline reassurance. Like there is something to be said for the fact that we don't need to know everything in order to give guidance for it. But then there is a, a fine line threshold, call it what you will, whereby you really should just say this is something that is a little more niche than the, the things that I see every day and something that I'd rather give you more. You know, it does take that little bit more confidence to just say not and uh, say less. Um, and, uh, and certainly as someone who's a professional waffler, I think I'm uh, more guilty than most of that. Holly, can you speak then to to some of the the understanding as to just how how relevant do we feel that these structural changes are to symptoms in this instance on that spectrum? Because I know it's kind of of course we need to talk about and think about teasing out the end of one, but it's just that the the research is there's a dearth of research on this. But just at least then speaking to your experience. Is there, is there a, um, a threshold point or a, or a window of which this stuff is kind of highly, it's much more likely to be structurally specific and relevant to symptoms that needs to be considered more thoughtfully um, than maybe the non-specificity that we've all said is too, too dismissive? Um, I think the difficulty is, and, and even recently, the understanding of dysplasia has even got more complex because we've realized the 3d nature of it so not only can you have the shallowness of the socket in a lateral direction but you can actually just have a shallow depth to the socket you can have it turn forwards turn backwards again the femur can be turned forwards or backwards you can then have that multi-directional deformity with also an impingement like a cam so it's understanding the 3d nature of what is going on and looking at the rotational profile of your patient and checking the different degrees so in prone so in extension versus flexion what's their rotation like and why would that be limited you know if you haven't got scans and they're grossly limited in internal rotation and got loads of external rotation you know think about whether they've got anteversion or retroversion and what that means and why um i think you know the mainstay is that what happens in the certainly in these developmentals and probably in MJ's case and certainly in my case you know MJ was treated as a baby I wasn't um, but over that time over those years the anatomy is not perfect and the labrum that is there that's providing that negative suction and holding that joint into place it has kind of from the research 11 times more of a role in terms of stabilizing that hip than in a normal hip so what happens is as you get that little micro shearing occurring, the labrum is holding and holding and it gets thicker and thicker and thicker to try and compensate for that micro shear in whatever direction it may be. And then eventually it tears. And that is often the first symptom that we, we then see. And then obviously that ties in with then a patient having a positive for deer. And then you think, oh, they've got impingement. I'm just going to treat this as impingement. So I think the, the most important clinical symptom is that that labral tear and that impingement sign but to remember that in terms of the spectrum again as you said the research is just not there and even at the moment you know we're looking into to studies and whether it's possible to start doing studies in the mild dysplasias because why does someone with a center edge angle of just under what is technically normal yeah. so just under 25 they can be grossly unstable and in agony but if you look at their scans, they're just under normal. And you can compare that with someone who's got a center edge angle of nine and they can cope and they can walk and they can run and they might get a little bit of pain from the labral tear. Um, 
I'm a big advocate and something that MJ and I worked on with the leaflet was trying to make sure that everything was put in a positive spin because I see a lot of patients come in and they're like, oh, well, I've got a label tear. I can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. And tra trying to make that kind of a normal thing and you can reduce the symptoms of that tear. Yes, it's painful at the moment. But again, you know, the studies say you could scan 100 people and 50 might have a tear, but that's not in, and it hasn't been done in, dysplasia. So if that tear is there, it's again that micro shearing on that anterior rim that's constantly occurring, constantly irritating the tear. So can we improve that by improving the muscle control and the active stabilizers, reduce that amount of shearing, change their ground reaction forces, change their loading, and therefore that anterior rim isn't as irritated and the tear doesn't become as symptomatic and they can, can do a lot more. But it's really, really variable in terms of you know, the patients I can see and the differences in people that have EDS versus people that don't have hypermobility versus severe to, to very mild. And in, in true answer, we know that in, you know, the more severe cases of dysplasia, so under your 20 or 18, again, differences in the, the literature, center edge angle, we know that a PAO is the most advantageous as long as there's no arthritic changes. And that will prolong the, the joint lasting mm. but that 18 to 25 those mild dysplasias we don't know whether the best thing is to do a PAO or to do a scope and especially in those that have the slight mild dysplasia with a cam or you know should we go in debride that cam and repair the labrum and leave the, the PAO and leave the dysplasia behind or not and that that we can't say at the moment um, and obviously each of us, I as a physio would say conservative management, my scope surgeon would say less scope, and my PAO surgeon would say RPAO. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, well that's the, that's the thing as well when something isn't uh, like OA hip might be where it's something that can obviously this overlaps, but it's more that you've got these large trial groups that we can try and get hold of, it becomes more challenging when things are a little more niche, although of course still uh, more common than people might think. I've got some great comments and questions that have come in. Sorry, it's coming. It was a bit came in a bit of a glut. I think it must have been a tech issue on my end. But uh, David Poulter said hip dysplasia diagnosis may have classically been a victim of the no early imaging guidance in MSK. What do you what do you think to that, MJ? Do you think that that this is an example of that? Um, well, actually, I mean, my understanding from from the British orth orthopedic guidance is that if symptoms aren't resolving, then then imaging should be sought and it should be an x-ray. Um, and that's my understanding from that particular guidance and from kind of our, our general understanding in the, the young adult hip world and people who are who do have experience in this clinically. Um, so when talking about guidance, is that kind of guidance as in what's what's generally debated, like consensus opinion? Um, yeah, there, there is a kind of a push to no early imaging. Um, yeah. Because I think that that's, 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 that's the thing to. is that it's more the narrative can be like that, but the actual yeah. guidance and support from um, best practice is sometimes not that. And that's something that I think we need to make sure we don't get away from is that that can sometimes just be like a, you know, generally theoretical rhetoric. It's like that's mm. not practically smart. You know, if, if something's not resolving, then what are you inferring if it's not resolving? Who? Are, what on earth are you playing God with there? Especially when people are saying, "Well, it wouldn't change management." You're not a clue. You're not helping. Like it just seems bizarre the arrogance that sometimes emerges from that, and it's this corruption I feel of holistic practice, whereby people are then perceiving 
they've, they've gone so far that way where it's just like structural non-specificity of which is sometimes a, a decent virtue in that of course we know that's not destiny right we've grown up a bit from then but to be that dismissive of it just seems arrogant to me and unfortunately is a current as we're talking about david's then asked if we could just briefly i know can i say briefly? can i just say yeah, go on. one thing on yeah, that go on, quickly course, course, course. it was just that a lot of the time the other thing that happens is that they do have a, an x-ray from the gp right and it comes back and it's reported no abnormal findings of course yeah yeah but all that comes through is that they, all they've looked for is arthritis so no arthritic changes but actually you know it, and that's why mj and i put it on the leaflet was the angles Mm. If, as a clinician, you can simply just see, I know it's aimed at the patients, but right, this is a center edge angle. Can I simply just do this in my practice myself? You know, whether you've got the angles on your computer screen or can you just estimate it yourself? Does it look displaced? Does it look shallow? Is the hip in the socket or is it subluxed out? Mm. Have you got a broken Shenton's line? Just these little things to go through um, because they're often reported as normal. I, I would say over 50%. And that's that seems fascinating as well, doesn't it? Where sometimes the specificity of the request almost makes a difference there as to what the guard and the, the radiologist are to and stuff. It's one of them where sometimes you do want to be quite specific. You know, it's like if I, if I sent a please review hip style X-ray when I'm looking for a particular stress fracture, then it, you, you know that's really poor requisition for me. But similarly, sometimes I think if it was just please please review scope of X-ray of, of OA. Um, then I think that sometimes that's one of the reasons it can get missed, as well as, of course, our radiology colleagues becoming more aware of that um, being a relevant finding. Um, David has mentioned, could you um, just say about a bit, a bit to the a bit to the surgery and the extensive nature of it? Because that is a that is a relevant variable when when equating when it comes to shared decision making. It'd be remiss if we were then always to infer that well, if this got found, then it's a really, really light touch feather procedure that also then doesn't need to be taken especially seriously. Of course, it's it's, it's more than that. So um, either of you jumping on that. Yeah, so that's a good question, actually. And that's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I, I we both felt that the leaflet is an important thing, because, you know, a 10 minute um, clinic appointment, um, it's very difficult for a patient, for in, in one of our examples, to, to take on board that this is potentially quite a big surgery and quite quite life-altering life and quite disruptive, especially in a young adult population, which which most patients are with hip dysplasia. Um, you know, we have kids, we've got jobs, we've got all the or school or career or things. How how on earth do we take this significant amount of time off work? Um, I mean, it's, it's quite a long recovery. Um, so in terms of what the surgery, I, I think sometimes there's a, a, a bit of lack of knowledge of the surgery so a pao surgery which which is what holly referred to earlier that's a, a pelvic osteotomy surgery which um in essence involves um chopping out that part of the pelvis to reorientate the the hip socket the acetabulum around to create a better a better acetabulum for the hip to be in um so that's obviously quite extensive surgery um requires a lot longer recovery than say your average hip replacement um and it takes a lot longer to become more functionally back right. to normal than than your average hip replacement and it's a considerable amount of time off work on crutches mm. um, it's particularly in a physical job so that is quite extensive. so it is that's a big decision to take on board and particularly if people are thinking of families like oh I'm, I'm pregnant 
what do, what do I do after wait to have the baby? How's it going to affect childbirth? Yeah, and all those kind of pelvic health questions, which are quite extensive. So sure, well, no, that's a great point. And of course, that that social circumstance of which you find yourself in a moment in time is something we all should be bearing in mind with everything. But when it's something like this that has major knock-on consequences, it's it's definitely important. I've just posted a link to download it. I haven't had that leaflet in hand yet, but I can certainly recommend it as a as an e-resource, of which, of course, is the most important thing these days. And wherever you might find it, kindly that is available as a PDF download on the RNOH website. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. I can't believe the absolute who's who of great thinkers that you have down there now. I know, of course, worked with Andrew Jaggi and John Doyle before, um, Anthony Gilbert. Um, and so for, for meeting more of you, it just goes to show just the expertise that you have down there, as well as your willingness to share that more broadly. So thank you so much for what you do, a real centre of excellence that, uh, that I'm so pleased to have been able to grab a bit of your time today. Where can people find out a little bit more about you both um, for follow-ups? So me, you could always follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at hipsterlife85. Um, that's where you can find me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, Twitter I'm Holes Busier with. Um, and then I've got a website dedicated to hip dysplasia, which is hipdysplasiaphysio.com. Um, so there's lots of information on there. The leaflet's on there as well. Um, so yeah, any, any questions, emails, just send them over. Happy, I'm obviously on nhs.net as well. Fantastic. I'm just trying to type this. I'm, if I put a typo in it, it don't work, then sorry, that's on me. But hipdysplasiaphysio.com is there. Hopefully that hyperlink works, but if not, easy one to find, no doubt. Thank you again so much and appreciate the comments coming. I'm sorry I was a bit sluggish on them. They were a bit of a tech issue, I think, a delay in coming. But Fiona, uh, you've posted a lovely comment here on Facebook, I think, about a close relation and uh, picking it up um, and it's something that, that that was a story I feel like I've heard so many times and it is as you've concluded in your comment Fiona a fascinating topic and one that I'm glad we've been able to just give a little bit of our time for uh, gone into overtime a little bit so we're going to wrap up now but uh, definitely one to discuss with these ladies and beyond uh, for uh, raising awareness because I think it speaks this particular issue speaks to some of the accidental biases that have emerged. Like I said, there's some sort of new age mistakes and, and, and ones of which I think even sometimes I've contributed to over the years. And, and it takes for sometimes uh, edge cases in some ways like this to make us realize that that sort of pendulum has swung too far sometimes in such ways that we could make mistakes. Uh, and and we, we need to learn from them swiftly because these are incredibly important circumstances. And as NJ just mentioned there, the psychosocial consequences downstream as well as more general uh, holistic consequences downstream can be can be huge so let's uh, always try and raise standards together and the best way I only know to do that is through discussion and through sharing resources as these have done so thanks again really appreciate it and nice to meet you thank you for having us Jack no all the best yeah, thank you. cheers bye, bye.